Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Adrian Goldsworthy on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower. This is, of course, the classic historical question. That is, why did the Roman Empire fall? And as you may know, there are many, many, many explanations. The difficulty, of course, is that when you have a lot of explanations, you don't have any satisfying explanation. And that's what makes Adrian's book so terrific. He he boils it all down to what is really quite a sensible account of the events that led the late Roman Empire to fall in the 5th century. I, I won't tell you exactly what the explanation is. It becomes clear in the course of the interview, but I will say that it focuses on the kind of nitty-gritty details of Roman politics, uh, which, of course, are always fascinating. They've often been treated in fiction. I don't see why, because, in fact, they were amazing. You know, he pays a lot of attention to Roman political culture. He also talks a little bit about the comparison, which is often made between the United States today and the Roman Empire then there have been a number of books that have treated this subject. We had a short discussion about it, and I think you'll find it entertaining. Adrian's not a big fan of these comparisons. I really enjoyed my discussion with Adrian today, and I think you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Now, you are someplace in the UK, correct? Yes, I'm in South Wales, over in the West. South Wales. I don't believe I've ever been to Wales. I hear it's beautiful, though. Some of it is, yes. Today it's, it's <laughs> raining and cloudy, and, uh, we're, but we're on the coast. We've got nice seaside and yeah. mountains not far to the north, so it's quite pleasant. Yeah, that sounds very nice. No, uh, we, we, are, we have overcast skies here in uh, central United States as well, uh, right. and we have no ocean and no hills. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I should tell our listeners that we have uh, Adrian Goldsworthy on the show today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower. Um, as all the listeners to this show will know, I, I have read the book. One of the great pleasures of doing this program is that I get to read all these fantastic books, and, and this is a, a, a really, uh, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting and terrific read. One of the things that occurred to me while I was reading the book um, is that there's a lot of, uh, there have been many fictional treatments of Roman politics, and it's kind of hard to understand why, because. Uh, Roman politics uh, don't really need to be elaborated in order to be incredibly interesting. <laughs> and Adrian does a terrific job of uh, kind of fleshing that out. There's lots of human drama in this book. And, of course, there's a ton of really terrific historical analysis. But before we get to the discussion of the book itself, um, Adrian, let me ask you to say a few words about uh, your own life. That is, where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in history, and that sort of thing. Well, I was actually born a few miles away from, from where I live now, um, sure. just in the city of Cardiff in South Wales, and grew up here apart from about seven years at Oxford at university. It happened the first university job I got was back in Cardiff, so and then writing took off, so I've pretty much been here ever since. Mm-hmm. So um, very much stayed in the hometown and uh, that area because it's, it's a nice part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, went to school locally, uh, went to a small boys' school um, where we were taught in a very traditional, old-fashioned way that was effective but not terribly exciting. <laughs> but it meant that I had to learn Latin from a young age, which is a, a big asset later on. Rather than Greek, I had to learn at university because um, when I was about 12, we were given the choice of learning ancient Greek, but it meant staying in at lunchtime and not going out and not kicking a football around or doing something like that. So at that age, I decided it was better to go out for lunch rather than have a lesson in Greek. So I had to learn that as a student um, when I was went off to Oxford. But uh, probably the hard way. So um, I suppose the interest in history just has always been there. Um, It is a nice thing about Britain that you've got so many um, sites all around you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a a castle in Cardiff that's um, 12th century. Mm -hmm. But for me, particularly, the interest in the Romans came 
because the Romans were here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Roman legionary fortress, or the remains of it, an amphitheater just about 20 miles to the east of where I live. So I remember pestering my parents to take me there all the time as a kid. And it was, you know, the Greeks, the Egyptians, it's all very well, but they weren't here. Mm-hmm. I could go to things that the Romans had built, and I could scramble over them, and I could touch them, and that just seemed to bring it to life so much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I can certainly understand that. I lived for a time and taught in Ireland, and I remember, uh, yeah. I, you know, I remember there would be things that would be hundreds and hundreds of years old, and I would look, and, the, and, I, and, and I would be with my Irish friends, and I'd say, look at that old castle over there, and they'd say, what old castle? <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yes, it, that, it, oh, that, true. yeah, right. There, yeah. You know, this is older than anything I'd ever seen in the United States. I mean, not that there aren't, you know, things of great antiquity here. Oh, yeah. But there's, um, but there's nothing like what they had laying or just laying around in Ireland, just everywhere. And But they, the Irish just didn't really notice it because it was part of the landscape. But it fascinated me, and I always wanted to go explore these things. And they were like, they'll probably tear it down and put up a new chip shop or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same, really. <laughs> most people but I, I don't know it's just one of those things that, that history has always fascinated and excited me and I, I think even as well and perhaps the reason I've done quite a lot of military history is, is I grew up my, my father had been in the, the latter stage of the second world war um, he ran a small shop which in Britain shops acquire people lots of old men who don't have anywhere else to go and mm-hmm. they sort of sit around and talk and to the point where everyone thinks they must be employed but they just turn up and there were lots of the people who've been soldiers in India and Burma and all over the world or in the Air Force so I heard all these stories growing up and it just makes you interested in mm-hmm. not just the past but the people mm-hmm. you know it, it isn't just the great events it's, it's what it meant for the individuals to mm-hmm. be there and that's the approach I've tried to take as far as possible to ancient history, even though obviously it's much more difficult there. But before we launch off into a discussion of the book, again, let me take another small digression uh, since you mentioned it. A a lot of the listeners to this program, I think... um, are uh, they, they were uh, what we call here in the United States history majors or are interested in writing history or they uh, are or were academics and are interested in, in writing for a popular audience and and you and some of the other people who I've interviewed on the show have successfully made that I would call it a leap <laughs> I'm not sure everybody would but I would call it a leap uh, from academia into popular writing can you talk a little bit about how you negotiated that and how you had to adjust the way you write and the kind of topics you chose and that sort of thing yeah, it certainly is. A, it, it, it's a leap. I mean, I had um, the good fortune in that even when I was doing my, my doctorate, my supervisor was very keen on writing well, which was a fairly unusual thing there, and tried to tell you to, you know, don't make it look like a thesis, make it look like a book. Mm-hmm. So I reckon by academic standards that some of the stuff I wrote then was at least possibly readable. Mm-hmm. But the first popular book I did, I, I got a contract to write a, a coffee table illustrated book on on Roman warfare Mm -hmm. and it was part of a series that John Keegan the the famous military historian was Mm -hmm. editing and for instance there was something like three or four volumes just covering the Second World War Mm -hmm. and I got one volume to cover a thousand years of Roman (laughs) military history in 40,000 words and a hundred illustrations and it meant that I think I think it was either the fourth or the fifth draft I wrote just to get it down to size because that word limit Mm -hmm. was tight but it It made me think very much from the the start about what was truly important, Mm -hmm. what you need to explain. And the big mistake always to make is to assume people know quite a lot Mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. Have to be prepared to explain. And really, in the end, though, I think it's something that it's it's best to try and remember what got you so excited about history in the first Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And if you turn to that, and if you talk to plenty of people who are interested casually, perhaps in a different period, wandering around, say, a historical site with them and just chatting Mm -hmm. is a good way of getting an idea of what people know and what interests them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, and through teaching and, um, you know, all of these things in a different way, it's being aware of the audience. Mm -hmm. If you write purely for the few dozen or few hundred other people who are specialists in your field, then that's fine and you're aware of that. But mm-hmm. uh, the things that will fascinate them, the minutiae, the detail, it's just too much to cope with for, mm-hmm. a, for a, a wider readership. And mm-hmm. I remember um, one of the first books I did after, sorry, the one after Roman Warfare was a thing on the Punic Wars, and I'd written a sort of introductory chapter that was straight out of really how I would have done things for an academic book. Mm-hmm. So I, I surveyed the 
the, the modern scholarship on the subject, and you know there were pages and pages of so and so says this, and then in response, mm-hmm. such and such said that. And the editor um, asked me out to lunch. I've been mean, to the editor. And so, you know, essentially, well, who are these people and why should I care about them? That's right. That's um, and just explain how, you know, you, you can get the same ideas across, but a lot of the information you can push into the notes or the bibliography. Yeah. And in the end, it's like a conversation. You know, you, you need to communicate with the reader, and that's mm-hmm. what it's about. You don't have to simplify the ideas, mm-hmm. but you just have to present them in a way that is interesting Mm -hmm. and all said and done, which to some extent in academia you don't have to do (laughs) because everyone's interested in the first place. Yeah, no, that's right. No, well, there's there's some variation there as well. uh, But but I think that's terrific advice to to people that want to write for a popular audience, that is to remember what excited you and never take Mm -hmm. anything for granted because, you know, I'm always surprised and amazed about the things that my students don't know. There's a good reason they don't know them because they haven't studied them for 20-odd years. Exactly. and I tend to forget this because I talk to academics a lot, but I, I think it's absolutely terrific advice, and, and I would suggest anybody uh, uh, follow it. So let me ask another uh, related question, and that is, uh, how, how did uh, writing for a popular audience affect the way that you choose topics for books? That, um, well, interestingly enough, the first few ideas of the, the more popular books were all topics presented to me by the publisher. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah. could you do a book on Roman warfare? Would yeah. you do a book on the Punic Wars? Yeah. Could you do a book on the Roman army? Yeah. The first one where I'd actually chose the topic myself was the biography of Caesar uh-huh. when I did before this, this last book. Yeah. And that was something I'd wanted to write for ages. Uh-huh. But by that time, I had an idea of how things worked, how publishers think. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it's, it's such an obvious topic. Um, to be honest, I was glad, though, that I'd written several other things for mm-hmm. popular market first because I think I was better prepared to deal with something big like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this this latest book on the, the fall of the empire again came through. It was my idea simply because I was became interested in the subject and I wasn't really satisfied in everything else. But you have to think in terms of topics that have recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, if you chose to write a biography of a Roman general like Domitius Corbulo or something who, who might be frightfully interesting and is in many ways, but the name doesn't have recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's heard of Julius Caesar. Everybody knows the Roman Empire fell. Mm-hmm. You need to have a topic where people are willing to pick the book up in the first place mm-hmm. and flick through it in a bookshop and browse through it, and then they might read. So you, you have to think in terms of, of a market for something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you don't quite have the freedom to look at the, you know, whatever your pet subject may be. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, though, that, that plenty of the big subjects are absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. and if you were writing purely academic studies you tend to be much more cautious about what you covered Mm -hmm. because you think well I'm not going to take the risk of writing on such a big thing as that Mm -hmm. I'll cover maybe one small aspect of Caesar's life Mm -hmm. or I'll look at one bit of detail Mm -hmm. of the fall of the empire Mm -hmm. it's rather like finding yourself often when you're teaching a course and you quite often with the nature of of how academic jobs work, you'll end up teaching something that you haven't really studied in great detail yourself. Mm -hmm. And that can often be a lot of fun where you, you know, you read up on a subject and then find explaining that and passing that on because, you know, we're all historians, so we know how to look at history. Um, So in a way, it's a similar experience. And again, it's thinking in the same way you think of courses that would be useful, but also that students might like. You think in terms of, well, what's important, but also what would people find interesting? So you you need to be again. It's it's awareness of the audience, and it is a different audience to the purely academic one. I, th- I think you should write a little article about this and submit it to I don't know whom because um, I, all of your advice just seems terrific to me. I, I meet lots of people uh, who want to write popular history, and and especially mm-hmm. not just popular history, but also um, historical fiction. And everything you've said, mm-hmm. I think, is spot on. It, that is exactly right. The other thing I would say is that I bet you agree with me is that get a literary agent and listen to mm-hmm. him or her. Uh, yeah, and, and 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 really listen very carefully and follow their advice because they you know, their advice because they do these things professionally, and they know what you should do better than at least I knew. I mean, I, I have an agent. Not that I've ever made him any money, but um, <laughs> but I do listen to him, and I'm probably not as closely as I should, uh, or he'd be a lot richer. The, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I think it's it's really important to listen to them. And, it's, they, it's, go ahead. Sorry, it's certainly true because I did the first few books without an agent. I was uh-huh. simply uh, because I'd been offered the contract, and then the, mm-hmm. the publishers liked the first coffee table book, so they asked mm-hmm. me to do a succession of mm-hmm. things. And it was with Caesar that 
I signed up with an agent, mm-hmm. um, and she's just been superb. Yeah. And it's it's meant that I've been able to take more time to do each book yeah. because obviously she's got a better deal. Yeah, no, but that's right. You have someone, as you say, that you can go to and say, well, you know, this is the idea. How does this work? What do you respond? Because they're, you know, they they know that they know the business. Yeah, they um, do. And it, it and in the end, if you're doing this professionally, then you have to think of it as a business. No, I think you know, that's it isn't right. simply a hobby. No, that's right. I think that's exactly right. And that's why you want to uh, enlist somebody like a literary agent who will, in a sense, work as your agent, who will work mm. for your benefit and will tell you what you uh, need to do and um, what you have to do in order to make a living doing this. And, you know, I, I think it's, I tell all historians that I talk to that they should get literary agents no matter how obscure their topics, because they have mm. the skills that are necessary uh, to do the research. They might not quite know how to write it, but the agent will help them with that. And, you know, you would be surprised. Uh, you know, some very obscure things, what you would think of as obscure things, um, can actually do quite well. I, um, I'm, yeah, I used to study the book industry a little bit when I was in journalism, and um, I worked on it. And I can tell you that it's, there's a lot of demand out there for for popular history, so um, oh, yeah. I applaud you. I really do. <laughs> I applaud you and envy you in a certain way. Um, so let's talk about... Uh, how Rome fell. You you begin the the book quite appropriately with the discussion of the historiography, which is enormous. I mean, this is the classic historical question. And it struck me in doing some research uh, as background for this interview is that one of the problems with the the question itself is that uh, the number of reasons or causes or explanations that have been offered are almost too numerous, that your mind can't keep them all. Yes. I mean, from the very beginning, I knew that it wouldn't be make any sense at all to write a book and to cover each one and each suggestion and then you know put the pros and cons for for and against it um simply because of the, there are so many and they'll, they'll swamp you but also rather a lot of them do rely on very limited evidence yes you know i personally suspect that there were huge economic problems in the, the latest later centuries of the roman empire and that, that was a major factor whether it was a cause whether it was to some extent an effect but it was it would spiral out of hand Measuring that is impossible because we don't have any statistics. Mm-hmm. Not that we can use. And you know, very sensible people have looked at exactly the same evidence and come to completely opposite mm-hmm. conclusions. Mm-hmm. So there were things like that that I know are important, and I talk about a little bit. But also realize that you simply cannot base an entire theory around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are other reasons why there are other things I think have been neglected. But it is. It's quite a daunting thing. Again, going back to, to what we said earlier, um, it's the sort of thing where if you were writing a formally academic study just for the scholars in the field, you'd have to turn it into some great multi-volume yeah. lifetime's work because mm-hmm. there are just so many different things to take mm-hmm. into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the sources themselves. Uh, and one of the things that you say in the book, or at very least imply is that you, you really kind of have to go with what you have and what we have well i'll let you talk about it what, what do we have in terms of sources for this period the late roman period it's extremely patchy um you know you have to remember that although there was a, an awful lot of history an awful lot of literature a lot of official documentation produced by the roman empire and in the ancient world that the tiniest fraction of one percent of it has survived mm-hmm. you know, we have lost so much many things we're, we're aware that they existed but um, they haven't survived. There's plenty more out there that we simply don't know about. So you're dealing with a tiny glimpse of something that was far more substantial, far more like modern records. It's also in style presents all sorts of problems. The bulk of what we have for late antiquity tends to be religious and particularly Christian literature. Logically enough, that's what the monasteries preserve. You know, that, that's what was worth copying. And the reason stuff has survived is generally because somebody has considered it worthwhile to copy the manuscript mm-hmm. and copy it again and again. You know, we rarely have an original document from 3rd century AD or something like that. It tends to be a medieval copy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's likely to be the earliest um, manuscript source. Mm-hmm. So you have those problems of survival. You also have, even when you get to conventional history, you have the differences in style, which not only was ancient historiography a, a very different thing to um, the modern way of, of, of writing history in that it tended to focus on certain things. There was much more emphasis on rhetoric, on style, on um, certain conventions rather than necessarily getting to the truth or giving you the detail. But for large parts of the period covered in the book, there are not detailed, reliable narrative sources for basic events. Mm-hmm. 
So you even have question marks over the existence of, of certain emperors. Um, mm -hmm. One, for instance, who probably only lasted a few months and only ruled Britain and a few parts of, of Northwest Europe in the third century, mm -hmm. his existence was confirmed because a coin turned up a couple of years ago. Yeah. So he, he lived long enough to have coins minted in his name. <laughs> and he's mentioned in the sources, but everyone had thought he was just an invention. Mm -hmm. um, to give you an, one idea of how poor sources get, particularly for the third century AD, one of the main um, documents we have to use is a thing called the Historia Augusta. Now, this pretends to be a set of biographies of emperors written by four or five different authors in the early fourth century. Now, it's quite clearly, um, in fact, the work of one man, possibly to some extent as a joke or a satire, written much later. Mm -hmm. And yet we're so desperate that we end up using fragments of this because there simply is nothing else. Mm -hmm. And to get even the basic framework of events, you end up using all sorts of questionable stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's very refreshing when you get to the parts of the fourth century and you have a, a narrative like Ammianus Marcellinus, but only a small part of that actually survives. Mm -hmm. Sixth century, you get um, Procopius with Justinian. But again, you, you know, before you get, even when you get to these, even when you get these good sources, they've got all the inherent biases, all the deliberate distortions, all the axes mm -hmm. to grind of any source of any period. Mm -hmm. It's just that very rarely is there anything to check them against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So although we can say, well, we're pretty suspicious about this, we're not quite sure whether he's telling the truth or exaggerating, mm -hmm or whether it's, he's just such a, a hostile commentator or he didn't even know. Um, if we reject that, there isn't usually anything else to put in its place. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's easy, you know, when you, you get wild stories about the Huns that Ammianus tells us about how, you know, they, um, they used to cook meat by putting it beneath their saddles and as they rode along the frictions that have gradually cooked it and all this <laughs> sort of, there's a lot that is deeply suspicious. Um, but when he tells us about an emperor or his motives or the actions he, he actually carried out, as I say, if we reject it, there isn't a lot to put in its place. So mm -hmm. all the time you have to keep putting in caveats. You have to have an element of caution that at times we simply cannot be sure what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in some ways it means that makes it almost easier covering a wider period because you, you know, it's, it's that much harder to look at the detail. But mm -hmm. it means that you could end up with almost every sentence, with almost any statement in the book, putting paragraph after paragraph of explanation, mm -hmm. of justification, of doubts, of suspicion, of, well, you know, to the point where you'd, you'd laden it down so much that um, it would just become impossible to read, but also confusing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you really have to begin at the, um, right from the, the word go and say, well, look, there's, there's a lot we can't know, there's a lot we're not sure about. Um, and even when you come to harder evidence like archaeology, which is something that has, has obviously grown massively since Gibbon wrote his classic decline and fall in the, the 18th century, mm -hmm. often if you look at the archaeological record for one region, the impression of that period is based on a handful of sites that may not have been fully excavated or may have been excavated decades ago and not particularly scientifically or before modern methods were available, may have been interpreted on the basis of all sorts of assumptions that perhaps don't really um, stack up when you look at them in detail. And that because you're dealing again with a tiny sample of the evidence that's there, because that's all we've discovered so far, one or two new finds, one or two new sites might completely revolutionize the impression of what life was like in yeah. Spain or something in the 5th century. Yeah. So that in particular, that's an ongoing thing. There will be new discoveries. There will be new interpretations. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think it's an important lesson. I mean, it, we, we tend to think in this information-rich age that um, there should be good records for everything. But I'm reminded of a kind of a similar, uh, a similar example in my own field, which was early modern Russian studies, where, where the documentary um, complex is quite similar, I think, to the one that you deal with. I have a colleague who has spent uh, thousands and thousands of hours and much of his scholarly career trying to figure out how many wives Ivan the Terrible had.
<laughs> we just really don't know. And you, know, you would think that that would be dead simple. He had five. He had four. And these were their names. But we don't know. We we really can't quite figure it out. And this guy has spent you know tons of time trying to figure it out. Uh, so in any event, I certainly can respect the fact that the documentary uh, complex is, 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 is quite limited. But nonetheless, we have to tell the tale. This is what I tell all my graduate students. You go with what you have, and this is what we have. Um, so uh, let, let me ask you a historiographical question now, because there's some discussion of this in the book. And I wasn't really aware of this not being a classes myself. Um, we don't really quite know what to call this period. Uh, it's, is, is it now uh, the fashion to call it the late antiquity, or, what, or is it the period of decline? What, 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 what do we call it, and why do people uh, uh, not really know what to call it? Well, decline and fall is very definitely out of fashion. Um, it really has become late antiquity for most people, and some of this has to do with People sensibly saying that, you know, this is quite an interesting period, it should be treated separately, it should be treated on its own merits, it shouldn't. The, the old-fashioned way, the sort of 19th century, early 20th century way of looking at it was to see it very much as, as rather a poor thing compared mm -hmm. to earlier Greek and Roman history. Mm -hmm. um, so there's an element of sort of justifying themselves amongst the scholars working on it, and particularly in, in English-speaking countries. Um, so late antiquity developed. You also, I mean, running along at the same time, the Dark Ages has rather vanished from history, mm -hmm. and you now have the early medieval period right. because medieval history departments tend to be better funded and a bit more prestigious. <laughs> so being an early medievalist makes a lot more sense career-wise. Mm -hmm. It gives you somebody else to talk to. So that, and, and yes, it is true that you know the, the Dark Ages aren't completely dark. There are lots of sources, you know, and we ought to be making the best of them, and they're an interesting period. But sometimes, again, you get this sense of almost people justifying their careers when mm -hmm. they really shouldn't need to. But yeah. there's that sense of, well, perhaps I've got to explain this. Mm -hmm. So um, for some people, it's still the late Roman Empire, otherwise it's late antiquity. Um, others will roll it into the early medieval world, particularly people who like the whole idea of sort of transformation of this sort of seamless development into the Middle Ages, and isn't that all great? Mm -hmm. um, and so you'll get some quite odd divisions of period. Mm -hmm. And it's now quite possible, whereas a generation or so ago, anybody who was a specialist in this period would also have studied the early Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. um, it's now quite possible to go through your career and simply study one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I will freely admit that I'm quite a latecomer to looking at this period. Pretty much everything I did as a student, my um, research as a graduate student, was all on the late Republic, the early Empire, mm -hmm. the, the period I've tended to write about in the past. Um, I hope that's an advantage, that it gives you some perspective when you come in and look at the the literature of the specialists mm -hmm. um, on this period, which is, is vast, and a lot of it is really mm -hmm. terrific. I mean, there, there have been huge advances in the field in the last 20, 30 years, um, and people have used sources a lot more intelligently. Um, but on the other hand, some of the answers they've come up with just do not make any sense at all to me as an outsider. And mm -hmm. at, at the very least, if I can highlight those, I, I'd quite like somebody to, even if they can prove me wrong, um, just to address some of these issues, because they, they simply seem to be ignored. Um, I think that w one of the one of the most interesting things about the book is that, uh, well, I, I should, people listening to this show will know, but historians tend to look for the causes of things. Uh, first, they look back a little bit, and then they, uh, in competition with one another, push it back a little further, mm -hmm. and then they push it back a little further, and it turns out mm -hmm. that uh, everything is a result of something that happened in the third century. Um, so, and, and this, this tendency to push things farther, farther back, I think you also see in your field. And, and, and one of the things that, that uh, I, I think I uh, read it in the book, or maybe I'm just um, drawing an inference, is that people tend to look at what happened in the fifth century in the light of things that happened in the third century during the third century crisis. But I think your thesis is that actually, while there was a third century crisis, that the empire was relatively strong in this period. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yes, I mean, I, I, in many ways, it's the, the sort of the new orthodoxy of the specialists in the period is that Rome goes through a slightly wobbly phase in the third century, but mm -hmm. the fourth century empire is this terrific, marvelously efficient thing that, in many ways, is superior mm -hmm. to the early empire. Now, personally, I don't buy that. Um, it, it doesn't work. As soon as you look closely at how at the empire actually trying to do anything, it, mm -hmm. it seems far more difficult to achieve quite simple tasks. However, the, the, the key thing to remember, which I, I try to emphasize throughout the book, is the sheer size of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. You know, 
it is existing in a world where it does not face a serious competitor. Mm -hmm. And that's even true well into the 4th century and 5th and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, there is no one out there with whom the Romans are in meaningful contact. I mean, they're, they're sort of dimly aware that um, China exists and the Chinese are dimly aware the Romans exist. And there's some very sort of distant um, luxury trade, but the, there's no real meaningful contact. They're certainly not competitors. Mm -hmm. you know, they're just they're too far away. Otherwise, Rome is bigger than mm -hmm. everyone else. It's got more people. It's more sophisticated technologically. It's wealthier. Its economy is more sophisticated. It's military. Everything is massively superior. Mm -hmm. There is no one out there who can compete on a, an even pitch, on a level playing field, mm -hmm. to Romans. Mm -hmm. So the sheer size of the, the Roman Empire means that it doesn't have to be efficient, and that mm -hmm. even in the later periods, even in the 3rd century and the 4th century, it is just bigger than everyone else. There is no one capable of pushing it over. There is no one really capable of of destroying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so this, this puts the question in a kind of a different light um, than, say, Gibbon did. I mean, in the sense yeah. that... Uh, in the sense that the, the Romans seem to have uh, snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. In other words, they, uh, the real question is, why, given all their superiority... Um, what, how, how was it the case that they fell? Well, that's the, um, obviously the, the big question of the book, and the, the, the main answer that I, I think just, just shines out and has been ignored again and again by scholars, and I, I don't really understand why the period specialists seem to ignore it, is that the system rots from the inside and it rots from the top. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the last few centuries, from 217 A.D., right through to near the end of the 5th century when the Western Empire collapses altogether and just becomes a memory, there are only about three decades without a civil war. Mm -hmm. So that's for more than two and a half centuries. The mm -hmm. Romans are busily fighting themselves. Mm -hmm. And because this doesn't have major cultural implications, you know, nothing much changes other than who's actually in charge when a civil war is fought, when it's decided, the specialists tend to take this as sort of part of the, the scenery. It's just a particularly mm -hmm. robust way of selecting the next emperor. Mm -hmm. But uh, very few emperors get to die a natural death. Mm -hmm. um, you know, m more Roman soldiers are probably killed fighting other Roman soldiers than they are fighting foreign enemies. Mm -hmm. These wars tend to be fought inevitably inside the empire. So when a city is stormed, when it's sacked, when it's destroyed, when cattle are driven off to feed the troops when areas are plundered. All of that is happening within your own empire, within your own provinces. Mm -hmm. And this goes on and on, and it fundamentally affects the mindset of the people in charge. The emperors themselves obviously are, are far more concerned about internal rivals because they're the people who will kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, the king of Persia, some German chieftain, however many battles they win against you, they are very unlikely to catch or to kill you. They're not going to take your job. Mm -hmm. But another Roman has to get rid of you. Mm -hmm. Another challenger, another usurper, he is your very personal enemy. Mm -hmm. And the civil war can only end when one of you is dead. Mm -hmm. So you have this sense whereby emperors become concerned about survival. But so does everybody else at each level in the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Because your opponents, the challengers, will come from your generals, from your senior bureaucrats, from your governors. So you can't really trust them. The people you have to use to control the empire, because you can't be everywhere, you can't do everything, you cannot trust these people. And they know that the emperor is suspicious of them. And you have a situation where, as far as they're concerned, they have to be nervous about everybody else, both their, their equals, their seniors, their subordinates, because one of the best ways to prove your loyalty to the emperor is to rat on somebody else mm -hmm. and to claim that they're plotting and condemn them. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a situation where you, you can't trust anyone, and everybody at all levels is far more concerned with personal survival, personal success and enrichment than they are with actually doing the job well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because the empire is so big, because its resources are so massive, it will probably win in the end. You know, it, the, even though the system is appallingly inefficient, it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. or at least it doesn't matter immediately. And what you have is it sort of lurches along, and there will be defeats, but they're not going to be too bad. Most of your enemies, they can raid into the empire, they can invade, but they can't stay there. They can't really conquer until much mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. In the end, you've got more resources, you can send more soldiers, you can bribe them to go away, you can win the conflict, mm -hmm. you, or at least you won't lose too badly. Mm -hmm. 
So you, you have the luxury. You can keep on fighting civil wars and the empire doesn't collapse. Mm -hmm. But it becomes less and less capable of dealing with even quite small-scale problems. Mm -hmm. And then you end up by the late 4th and 5th century where you will have these sudden, very dramatic failures where you will have military disasters, you'll lose a war, or you might lose a province. You've got to the point where the system is creaking so badly that when it does face even quite a small crisis, it simply cannot cope mm -hmm. in a way that was unimaginable centuries earlier. Mm -hmm. you know, and yet you've still got all the resources. You are still so big. You are so sophisticated, but you can't use them in an effective way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to someone who has uh, studied Russian history for mm. over 20 years, this sounds like the story of the Soviet Union to me, but we can come back to that <laughs> in a second. Everything you just said about the Romans could have been said about the Soviet Union, I, mm. I guarantee you. But let me ask this question. Why, why was it that the Romans were smart people? Um, why was it the case that they failed to produce a, um, a, a, a stable system of succession to high office that did not involve assassination as one of its primary tools? Well, the thing is they'd had it for a while. I mean, if you look, um, it was one of the interesting things coming from doing the biography of Caesar onto this, this next project in that Caesar's life was dominated by civil war. You know, there, there's writing in the forum months after he's born, when he's a teenager, the, the first Roman, well, for the first time Roman army um, is actually led by its commander against the city of Rome and storms Rome, and that will happen time and again. So the first century BC is dominated by civil war, by um, attempted coups, by assassinations, which culminates in Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, become the emperor Augustus. Mm -hmm is the last man left standing, mm -hmm. and he creates the, the imperial system, the principate, as we call it, because mm -hmm. he pretended to be the, the princeps, the, the first among equals, the mm -hmm. first citizen, rather than the military dictator that he, in fact, was. Mm -hmm. But then for more than 200 years, there are only very, very brief interruptions to the stability. I mean, a few emperors get assassinated, usually because they're mad, um, and, you know, after a while people get fed up even of that. <laughs> but there are not these repeated civil wars. There is far more stability. So, you know, unless you take the view that that's almost a fluke, mm -hmm. then the system has developed where it actually works quite well. Mm -hmm. um, it works particularly well in the second century where, Almost by chance, you end up with several emperors who don't have sons of their own. Mm -hmm. They adopt somebody as mm -hmm. their successor, and that means they've got far more choice over who they get and how much mm -hmm. talent they've got. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have a, a fundamental shift that happens after Marcus Aurelius, who does have a son, and he's succeeded by his son Commodus, who proves to be one of the, the certainly bad and possibly mad emperors, um, but who, you know, last 12 years before he's finally strangled in his bath. Mm -hmm. um, that succession then leads to, well, his death leads to a civil war because there's no, and after that you have, you're getting very quickly into this cycle that will not really end till the empire goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, and, and why at that moment, why, why do you think the system sort of slipped uh, over an edge or reached a kind of tipping point where you had this cycle of civil wars, particularly then? Part of the problem is that when... Commodus is initially succeeded by a chap called Pertinax, who gets murdered after three months. Mm -hmm. But then you have a, a four-year civil war, when three commanders of the biggest armies in the empire fight it out, mm -hmm. and they do deals with each other for a while to sort of, you know, let's share things, then they basically kill each other off. Mm -hmm. That The dynasty that succeeds to that starts to make some fairly fundamental changes to the system, which will continue throughout the third century. Up until then... Anyone who could possibly be considered an emperor had to be not just a senator, but one of a very small number of important leading senators, you know, maybe a dozen or so men in the entire empire mm -hmm. who could be considered potential emperors. Mm -hmm. That does make it a lot easier for the emperor to keep an eye on these, you know, these people. He, he knows who the challengers are likely to be. Mm -hmm. And even a bad emperor can keep an eye on them, but a good emperor will placate these people, give them enough honors, or also, you know, watch them and, and if necessary, execute them. Then it changes. The emperors who succeed, the ones who win through civil war, are obviously nervous of their position. Mm -hmm. And they have a tendency to marginalize the Senate. And mm -hmm. this happens over about a generation where instead of being the men through whom the emperor ruled the empire. Mm -hmm. You know, they provide all your most important governors, all your army commanders, all your advisors, and any emperor who moves beyond this group for his advisors is hated pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And most 
simply don't do this. Instead, you start choosing advisors from the next social class down, which is a far bigger group, the, the equestrian order that numbers in probably tens of thousands instead of a few hundred. And as you make these people your army commanders, as you make them your advisors, they get power. Mm -hmm. You end up with a situation where in 217, sorry, yes, 217, when um, the Emperor Caracalla is murdered, the commander of his bodyguard, who isn't a senator, who's had no political career whatsoever, but because he controls the troops on the spot, declares himself emperor. Mm -hmm. And from then on, it becomes much rarer for a senator to be an emperor. And the senators stop having a military role. They stop being the governors. You end up dividing power. Emperors try to make themselves safe by relying on people of a lower social status to be their most important um, agents, their commanders, their, their governors. But that doesn't work because then these people become emperor and there are a lot more of them and it's much, much harder to watch thousands of potential rivals than it is a dozen mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. you know, it's very difficult. The emperor can be made in Spain, he can be made in Britain or Syria, anywhere where you can get enough troops to proclaim you emperor then you have a, a, a reasonable chance you can be a challenger. You might not last very long, but you could succeed. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing becomes less stable, and it is a key mistake. The emperors think they're making themselves safer, but in fact, they make their position far more precarious. It's the same later on, at the end of the third century, when ritual develops at court to a far more extreme degree. You know, Augustus pretended to be the first among equals. He would walk through the streets of Rome. He would rise to greet senators when they came into his house, and he would shake hands with them. By the end of the third century, you have emperors like Diocletian who are wearing jeweled robes, who mm -hmm. insist that people must prostrate themselves on the ground when they come into the imperial presence. You know, the favored ones might get to kiss the hem of your robe. You're surrounding yourself with ritual. You make it much harder for people to get to you. In theory, because this should make the emperor more majestic, it should make him um, less vulnerable to assassination, to um, attacks like that. But in reality, it isolates him. Mm -hmm. And it also means that, again, once you become emperor, all of these things are now, you know, you're treated that way. That's how people behave to you. So, again, it doesn't really matter who you are. All you need is just enough backing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see. That's, I find that uh, you know, I find the explanation quite compelling again because it jives with everything that I know about Soviet history. So I've, I've seen this before. <laughs> um, well, in, in the end, a military dictatorship is probably going to go the same way. Yeah, no, right. So let me uh, let, let me just present a couple of other things that have been major explanations that have been proffered for the decline of the empire. You've dealt with one of them, but I might like you talking about them a little bit more. And that is the the. Um, the Germanic invasions and the, and the Persians, um, uh, did, 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 how did they contribute to the decline of the empire and its fall? Well, the, the sort of the orthodox view is that the Persians are this new superpower that suddenly springs to life in the early third century. And because it's such a threat, then Rome has to militarize. Rome has to become far more of a, a blatant dictatorship. And it has to reform and the emperor has to be much more ruthless about the way he uses and controls power. Um, I don't think, that, again, that works because the Persians, they are aggressive at the start, but that's because the Persian king has made himself king through his own civil war, through rebelling against the Parthians. And he needs to be aggressive, but Persian aggression tends to come in the aftermath of a Roman civil war. Mm -hmm. When the Romans are busy stripping their garrisons away from the frontiers and going and clobbering living daylights out of each other, <laughs> they're vulnerable. And the Persians, you know, they're a new regime. They need glory. They need money. The big bad Romans are your neighbors. Everybody hates them. So it's a very good, glorious thing to go and raid the Roman provinces, mm -hmm. bring back a lot of slaves, bring back a lot of, of plunder. So. Persian attacks tend to occur and be far more successful whenever the Romans make themselves weak. Mm -hmm. I find it actually difficult to believe that they are much stronger or more threatening than the Parthians. They are still a big civilization. They're organized. They have an organized army. But they're a lot smaller than Rome. Mm -hmm. They don't have the population. They don't have the money. Um, you know, there was never going to be a case of a Persian army arriving on the river Tiber and mm -hmm. sacking Rome itself. Mm -hmm. And yet the Romans pushed down the Euphrates and Tigris valleys time after time and burned down the Persian capitals. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a different, they are powerful. They're the biggest state out there, but they are still dwarfed by Roman power mm -hmm. until the empire divides. And by the time you get to about the 6th century, then maybe there's equality. But it's, it's taken Rome to decline a big, a, a, a huge degree before that, that's possible. Mm -hmm. The Germans, the tribes, the barbarians are a slightly different problem in that 
again, there's the old view that these unite, you know, that whereas you had, say, in Julius Caesar's day, lots of small independent tribes, that they coalesce into these great confederations like the Franks and the Alemanni and the Goths and, you know, groups that will carve out kingdoms for themselves in, as the Roman Empire collapses. Again, there's a problem in that is when you actually look at how these tribes behave militarily and politically, there seems no difference at all between the first century BC and the fourth century AD. But, you know, they act in exactly the same way. They don't seem to have bigger armies. They don't seem to have huge numbers of people. If anything, the armies are probably smaller. And once again, just like the Persians, German successes, barbarian raids occur most often at a time when the Romans are busy fighting each other. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of successive civil wars where the Roman army has simply worn itself out, it isn't there, it isn't in place, even if soldiers exist, they're not well trained, they're not well supported, they're not well controlled, they're not that confident. So it's one of those things where the Germans get more and more successful because Rome is weak. And by the time they are creating kingdoms, by the time the Visigoths can overrun Spain, the Vandals can take Africa, the Goths later on Italy, there are not very many of them in these armies. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is virtually no one who can organize a big enough force to, to oppose them. Mm -hmm. um, there's another interesting side, which, which again, we tend to think very much of these sort of ravening hordes of barbarians streaming across the frozen river Rhine and all this sort of thing. But much of the contact between the, the empire and the barbarians is, is peaceful and it's to do with trade. Mm -hmm. And again, it's something where Rome's own problems cause the, the tribes outside who've always been aggressive but haven't been that organized, but mm -hmm. they tend to make them more aggressive because the people you really trade with are the communities based around the Roman army along the frontiers. Mm -hmm. Now, when those march away to fight a civil war and often don't come back, the market for the German farmers has gone. Mm -hmm. So the livelihood these people have relied on has suddenly vanished, which means that to feed your family, to feed yourself, probably the best thing to do is to go and raid the Roman province <laughs> because, hey, the soldiers have gone, so the opportunity is mm -hmm. there. Um, the other thing is, is that when a civil war occurs, for a Roman leader, he knows he's going to be fighting another Roman army. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have a technological or tactical advantage over the enemy, which means that in the end, it's numbers that will probably count. Mm -hmm. And you can't raise lots of disciplined Roman soldiers quickly and form them into an army. But what you can do is go and hire a load of barbarians, pay them to come and fight on your side. Mm -hmm. Which is good, but given that somebody is bound to lose the civil war, that means all the mercenaries they've hired are then stuck in the middle of the empire somewhere, probably not too welcomed by the opponent mm -hmm. who isn't likely to want to pay them. So you end up with some of the raids starting from German mercenaries who've got to get their way, find their way home. Mm -hmm. But also you create lots of German war leaders because mm -hmm. you keep paying them subsidies. Mm -hmm. And when these people don't have a Roman to hire them, They've got to feed their warriors. They've got to pay and reward them. So, again, the best alternative is to go and raid the Roman provinces, get glory that way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, again, this, this Roman instability feeds outwards, and it encourages and makes more aggressive the, the peoples outside at the same time as you're making yourself very, very vulnerable to attack. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, no, I can... Yeah, I can, I can absolutely understand that dependence. And then once uh, uh, the Romans withdraw, then there's a, a certain amount of hard feeling about that. Uh, mm. So the, the, let's uh, turn then to um, uh, an unavoidable name here in the discussion of uh, Roman affairs. That is Gibbon. Gibbon's mm. uh, favorite explanations, as I recall them, from about 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and that would be one would be the decline of uh, morals or civic virtue. Uh, what do you, is, there, is there anything to this? There's an element. It's certainly the Romans, as indeed the Greeks, tended to explain any big problem essentially in moral terms. Yeah. So the, we're not as good men as our, our fathers were, our grandfathers were, and therefore we don't fight as well. We bicker with each other. Ambition, greed, all these things take over. They were saying exactly the same things in the first century BC when they're having the civil wars there as they do in the fourth, fifth, and, uh, and later. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly, it's one of the things that um, again, some of the scholars working on the period will dispute this, but the archaeology is difficult to argue with. Roman cities tend to be bigger, more prosperous in the second and early third century, mm -hmm. and they shrink in size. You don't get the big monuments built that you had after that. Um, there is also something of a withdrawal from public life, but it is limited. 
the biggest group you lose are the senators, mm -hmm. because the emperor doesn't trust them, so they can't have their political careers. Now, in some ways, you think, well, that just cuts off the sort of top 600 or so people who then basically will concentrate on literary pursuits and on honor and prestige at court, but not really having major responsibility and on doing favors for each other and, and this sort of thing. But the local aristocracies, the people who were the big men in a city in Spain, say, or North Africa, the people who do well locally earlier on aspired to make their children equestrians and then perhaps their grandchildren senators. You know, by the second century AD, you've got men like Trajan and Hadrian, whose families were from Spain. You'll have Septimius Severus from Africa. You're having emperors, not just senators, but emperors who have really had a long family history in one of the provinces. Mm -hmm. and, and yet they are Roman, they aspire to going to the center. Mm -hmm. That weakens as cities become less important, as the central government takes more and more power into its own hands, and instead of letting the cities and the provinces govern themselves as much as possible on the day-to-day -day basis, then central government wants to control it. Mm -hmm. But it isn't really big enough, and it isn't really capable enough of doing this terribly well. But it means that being an imperial civil servant has far more advantages than getting involved in your local politics, mm -hmm. to the extent where you're actually having to force people to take on obligations, because people in local government spent a lot of their own money in building projects in the cities. You know, they didn't get much of a salary. If they wanted to be famous, which was the, you know, the great urge to, to excel, to um, exalt your family name, you had to spend, you had to commit a lot. That is no longer important. You get a job in the imperial civil service, you get status, you get honors, you get legal protection, and you get exemptions from doing anything from your home community. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a rotting of the system. Again, I suspect it has far more to do with this, the, the immediate political problems that you have at the very center of the empire, and it gradually filters down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. So another uh, and related uh, factor that Gibbon talks about famously is Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. is, there, is there anything to that? To some extent, I mean, people do tend to exaggerate um, the extent to which Gibbon argues that this was a, a major factor in decline. He certainly is extremely scathing and often, you know, this is sometimes where his wit is most frequently <laughs> and well expressed, is having a go at some of the, the leaders of the early church and some of the bishops who were busy organizing schisms and... Um, but you have to remember as well, you know, he's an, an 18th century Englishman who's writing in the Enlightenment and who is not terribly keen on the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome, mm -hmm. particularly as, you know, almost an act of student rebellion, given himself had briefly converted to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's an element of personal history as well. And, you know, you've only got to go back when he was a, sm a small child. You've got the last Jacobite rising in Scotland. Yeah with, you know, a Catholic king. Yeah. Um, so it's very much a live issue, and there's this suspicion of particularly an organized Catholic church. It's obviously one of the great stories of the period of how Christianity goes from being this persecuted sect in the first and second centuries to becoming the religion of empire under Constantine and afterwards. And, you know, really by the end of the period, there is very little trace left of, of paganism, mm -hmm. um, certainly in... Uh, in the higher levels of society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a huge story, but when you look closely, there's actually very little difference in behavior between the Christian empire and the pagan empire. Mm -hmm. The ideology of power, the ideology of empire doesn't really change at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Constantine converts largely because he becomes convinced that the Christian God will give him victory. Mm -hmm. So it's the power of, of God rather than a deep emotional thing or um, conviction that perhaps comes later. Um, but previous emperors had claimed to be particularly favored by certain divinities, especially the sun god in the third century, mm -hmm. and had tried to promote this. There was a sort of move towards aspects that were similar, so that it makes a difference. But I mean, Gibbon obviously has a go at the um, the rise of monasticism and how many influential people and important people stepped out of public life and went off and became hermits or nuns or whatever. You can easily exaggerate that. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember what we said at the beginning, that our sources are limited, and an awful lot of what survives tends to be stuff that the church considered important. So 
we get lots of lives of ascetics, of hermits, of, you know, Steinites, these chaps who, who sat on top of poles contemplating. Um, <laughs> They weren't normal, you know, even at the time. That's why people wrote about them. And I, I don't mean that in a sort of, you know, critical sense. You can take that. But in terms of, you know, this was not what everybody was doing. Um, you tell these stories in the same way, you know, we do a horror movie or something like that because it's exceptional, because it's exciting. That's what people want to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's what they might admire, but it isn't, you know, this isn't everyday life mm -hmm. um, for the, the overwhelming majority. So it's, it's a lot more limited. And again, it's something really that follows on later rather than causes the problems of the empire. People withdraw from politics because politics has just got so dangerous and public mm -hmm. life has got yeah. so dangerous that it can simply be safer um, to go into the church. I mean, yeah. It's quite interesting that in some of the later civil wars, when you, you beat somebody who really, you know, the emperor decides he just isn't worth killing, so he isn't that much of a threat, you often make that defeated rival a bishop mm -hmm. to send him off somewhere yeah. to go and, um, yeah. you know, just keep, you know, you, I don't need to kill you, but uh, just, just busy yourself that way and don't worry about politics mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see. No, I'm reminded of something that uh, some very wise person said to me, and that is that if all that you had was a dictionary of national biographies surviving from some era, you would come to the conclusion that everyone was famous then. <laughs> so, so yeah, you do have to. You, people don't write about everything. They only write no, what's interesting right. to them. So, let, let me ask you a, 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 a kind of controversial question. I'm very interested in this myself. We've we've skirted it a little bit here, and that is, you you close the book uh, with some discussion of attempts to compare the. Um, I'm not going to call it the modern American empire because mm -hmm. I don't think it's an empire. Uh, mm -hmm. modern, uh, the modern United States with um, the late Roman Empire. Maybe you could talk. You're not a big fan of this, I think, and maybe you could talk a little bit about why not. There are quite a few reasons, um, and I think on the whole, you know, we all ought to be very glad that the modern America isn't like ancient Rome <laughs> because you really wouldn't. I mean, much as I admire and like yeah. studying, you really wouldn't want the Romans around in the world. Right. Um, but it's it is something that you just find again and again. This this parallel is brought up from the beginning. I wanted to write the book as a historian looking at the period. I think if you go, if you start with an assumption and you want to prove a case for uh, similarity with the modern world, you will find it. Mm -hmm. You will have whatever prejudices, whatever beliefs you have, you will see them in the evidence because you'll want to see them. Mm -hmm. And really you need to look at the evidence and see what pattern emerges on its own mm -hmm. and try and understand the fall of Rome simply within the context of the times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as possible, we try to make ourselves detached. I know it, it's, it's, you cannot completely remove all biases, all assumptions, but as a historian, you, know, you try to understand the past on its own terms. And mm -hmm. I think if ever you stray away from that consciously, then you're, you know, you're going to go down the wrong path and mm -hmm. you will, it will weaken everything you say. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the Romans, of course, it, 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 in some ways that there, there are things that are useful. That, you know, for the Romans, their word imperium means power. Mm -hmm. So from their point of view, you could see the United States as a, an empire because it is a power. But it, you know, it isn't the same um, with obviously the, the exception of the, the physical occupation of, of the West and the American continent. You know, it, it has never been the sort of power that has sought major overseas provinces and possessions, which is the one thing that the Romans did on a very big scale. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of basic differences in just the world has changed so much in terms of the sheer size of the population, the speed of communications, the, the pace of everything, um, and um, a lot of assumptions of international law, ideas of this sort, which, okay, may be to some extent ephemeral, but um, the Romans didn't really recognize the, the right of anybody else to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they never dealt with people as an equal. Mm -hmm. They simply thought in terms of their own advantage. They, they thought it quite natural that other people would fight for their freedom, but they also had no compunction at all about taking it away from them mm -hmm. and turning them into Romans. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you try and look at specifics, if you try and force the modern world into the mold of ancient Rome, then in the end you're not really going to learn very much and you're not going to understand the modern world properly. Mm -hmm. I think the value of history is that it tells us about how people act and how they think and how they work and whilst yes, a society will affect an awful lot of things of how we behave, how we act, in the end, personally I believe that people are fundamentally the same mm -hmm. as they always have been. And that the way they interact, the way the societies work, will always tend to um, fit into similar patterns. Mm -hmm. There are so there are general lessons I think we can learn mm -hmm. about 
how a political system can fail, can collapse, can decline. There are also sheer warnings in that, again, going back to an earlier point, the basic truth of the Roman Empire was that it was so huge, it was so wealthy, it was so sophisticated, far more so than any rival, that it didn't face serious competition. And it meant that it could survive for a very long time without being efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that is a warning to all of us, and that's a warning to, to businesses as much to countries, to any institution, in that it's easy to take for granted that because you, you keep on being successful, you must deserve it. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's a particular warning we ought to think about in modern Western democracies is that it's easy for us to take all these things for granted. And they're pretty rare. Mm -hmm. You know, there haven't been too many societies like, uh, like those in, in history. Mm -hmm. um, and these things could be fragile. These systems can collapse as the Roman Republic collapsed. The Roman, you know, even when you are powerful, even when you dominate the world, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you always will if mm -hmm. you stop working for it. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you stop, in the end, realizing what you're there for mm -hmm. and remembering that. And, you know, um, whether it's a, a business competing and effectively marketing, effectively producing, doing all these things, if it doesn't face serious competition, its weaknesses, its flaws will not become obvious mm -hmm. until suddenly the situation changes, the circumstances become less favorable, or a competitor arrives, mm -hmm. and then you tend to get hit very strongly mm -hmm. and you collapse quickly. Um, with countries, the same thing can happen. Um, you know, it's obviously recently everybody's been, everyone in their dog seems to be talking about the Great Depression and assuming that, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're going into the new one, all this sort of thing. In the same way that um, you had a lot of talk in the, the run up to um, the Iraq War about the 30s and the appeasement of Hitler and mm -hmm. Neither of which situation, I mean, I, I'm not arguing at all either way about any of those things, are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the threat of international terrorism, which is a serious and a dreadful thing, is not the same as the, the threat of Nazi Germany mm -hmm. or Imperial Japan, mm -hmm. because those were organized, industrial, powerful states that do things differently mm -hmm. and have the capacity to inflict far more damage. Um, so sometimes I think we end up, you know, we like to in the same way that the modern crisis could become another Great Depression, well, it's difficult to see as yet, and I hope we won't see it, the, the soup kitchens, the, the levels of poverty mm -hmm. that you had in the 30s mm -hmm. being repeated, because we've got a lot further to fall. Mm -hmm. You know, we are a far more prosperous society to start off with. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes, we, you know, history gets used very casually. Mm -hmm. um, and again, everything, every immediate disaster, every short-term disaster can be the collapse of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. um, well, the Romans were talking about their empire collapsing for centuries before it actually <laughs> did. And yet, even at the very end, no one could quite imagine it happening. You know, yeah. you talked about it, but it was one of those things you take it for granted. So I think there's, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there are sort of lessons in there. And I think there are things we can learn, but they're more very general things about human behavior. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, a, that's, just, that's just a terrific statement, general statement of, of, of how you should and should not use historical analogies, and I, and I agree with absolutely everything in it. I, I, I think I'm going to get a T-shirt that uh, says, um, I, think, I think your expression was, history gets used very casually. And I'm going to <laughs> because that is exactly right. I mean, people just mm. glom onto these things, and they sort of mold them around contemporary events as if they were identical, when in fact they're, mm. they're really very, very very different and uh and you know it's, it's a it's, it's a it's a curious thing and it's something that professional historians and popular historians have to fight against you know all the time because these mm. things um you know they get repeated and they they kind of get into the cultural stream and they're very difficult mm. to to remove especially you know i was just talking to students about appeasement appeasement is something mm. we don't seem to be able to do away with and really mm. it's it's achieved a kind of life of its own the idea itself has an autonomy that isn't rooted in what happened in um the, the late 1930s uh, it, it's mm. it's it's now a, an entity that exists and has to be fought on its own so it's very very peculiar so anyway let me um let me say that we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Let me ask you our uh, traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your next project? I'm going back to really the sort of logical uh, follow-up to Caesar, in that I'm sticking with Shakespeare as regards titles, and I'm doing a paired biography of Antony and Cleopatra. Oh, really? Um, so it's a slightly different thing, It's it's, um, but it's... It's an interesting story because Cleopatra in particular, I think people always get wrong. And 
the more I look at it, the more I think the image of Mark Antony, which really developed quite soon, almost some of it in his own lifetime, some of it his deliberate presentation himself as this sort of bluff military man, mm-hmm. when you look closely, isn't borne out by the facts. That mm-hmm. wasn't what he was. He was far more of a politician. He actually spent next to no time fighting anybody or with the Roman army. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the other thing is, the uncomfortable truth is that we like an Egyptian Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. But um, she was actually born and lived closer in time to us than she did to the builders of the Great Pyramid. Yeah, no, that's right. That is absolutely right. Actually, um, uh, my, my, uh, I'm forgetting exactly who it was, but I did interview somebody who wrote a biography of Cleopatra on this show. In fact, All right. I'm going to take just a second to look it up, even, because I, I, I feel embarrassed that I cannot remember her name. Um, I will say it in the... Darn it, I cannot remember. Well, I encourage anybody who uh, has access to new books in history to go look, but she wrote a terrific book about mm. Cleopatra, and she points just this out. Um, the mm. other thing is that, yeah, the Egyptian Cleopatra... It's, it's very interesting about Cleopatra, because she really lived in the Hellenistic world. She wasn't, mm. she wasn't very Egyptian at all. Um, and uh, one question I actually asked her... Darn if I can remember her name. Uh, was uh, what language... Um, uh, the two of them, Mark Antony and uh, uh, Cleopatra, spoke to each other in. I guess it must have been Greek, right? I, oh, yes, yeah. As far as we know, she Greek, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah um, it have been Greek, right? So I just thought that was an interesting point. But anyway, we looked very much forward to seeing that book. Good luck delivering it. You told me to deliver it by Christmas. Yep. That is, uh, yeah, that sounds like a lot of um, work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll do it. Yeah, I'm sure that you'll bring it off wonderfully. Uh, so we've been interviewing, um, we've been talking to uh, Adrian Goldsworthy today about his terrific new book, uh, How Rome Fell, The Death of a Superpower. I've enjoyed the interview very much, um, and I'd like to say thank you, Adrian, for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall. It's been great to, have, uh, okay. to be here. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Adrian Goldsworthy about his new book, How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.